This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is What Was Neoliberalism? Studies in the Most Recent Phase of Capitalism, 1973-2008, to by Neil Davidson. While it is widely agreed that neoliberalism arose in the wake of the global economic crisis of the 1970s, there remains much debate about how to understand its significance and even how to define it. In this important posthumous publication, the late Marxist scholar Neil Davidson brings his considerable intellectual breadth and characteristic generosity to bear on this critical question, paying particular attention to the social dimensions of neoliberalism. Find What Was Neoliberalism at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. In the United States today, an estimated 100 million people are in debt because they sought medical treatment. This enormous financial burden imposed on people who seek care in this country compounds their physical and psychological suffering and undermines their financial well-being and also their freedom. Today, if you're an American and you fall sick or get injured without wealth, you can face increased financial insecurity, lawsuits, wage garnishment, home foreclosure, and even jail time. This debt is obviously a symptom of a deeper disease, namely our lack of quality, public, universal, and free health care. In the book, Your Money or Your Life, Debt Collection in American Medicine, emergency physician and historian Luke Messick exposes how this uniquely punitive and profitable system developed over the centuries, untangling the threads of law, finance, and medicine to expose the socially and emotionally corrosive consequences of profit-driven and debt-producing healthcare provision. He also details how patients, physicians, activists, and regulators have tried to push back on the privatization of care in the imposition of unjust medical debt and aggressive collection tactics, offering lessons for future fights that aim to provide no-cost quality care for all patients in need, while also saving them and their families from financial ruin. Luke is interviewed by my intrepid guest host, Astra Taylor. Before we get this podcast started, please support The Dig. This podcast, which chances are you are a fan of, it's only possible because listeners like you contribute at patreon.com slash the dig. Bourgeois economists like to say that we can't have nice free things because of free riders. Please prove those bourgeois economists wrong by contributing to this essential political education project that we put out almost every single week. We also, depending on where you live and how much you contribute, have books, tote bags, coffee mugs to send you in the mail. And all contributors of any amount at all get our excellent newsletter written by Ben Maybe, delivered directly to your email inbox. You can peruse our newsletters alongside our vast archives at thedigradio.com. But trust me, you want it delivered by email. Please contribute what you can now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. There is a link in the show notes. Hit pause. Click it now. 
Okay, last but not least, Luke describes Providence independent journalist Steve Alquist as running a lefty news site called Uprise R.I., If you are interested in RI politics, something I engage in quite a lot, but I know perhaps the majority of you don't live in Rhode Island, don't really care, but if you do care about Rhode Island politics, you should know that Steve now does his writing not at Uprise, but on Substack. And that's where you can find Steve. He does such great work. Okay, here's Luke Messick, a historian and physician. His research focuses on the political economy of healthcare. His first book, No More to Spend, is a history of medical neglect and exploitation in colonial and post-colonial Malawi. His second book, which he's discussing today with Astra, is Your Money or Your Life, a history of medical debt collection in the United States. He's an attending physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and an instructor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School. Luke is interviewed by Astra Taylor, a writer, filmmaker, organizer, and guest host here at The Dig. She's the director of numerous documentaries, and her books include The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart, Democracy May Not Exist But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, and the American Book Award winner, The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. Her next book, Solidarity, The Past, Present, and Future of a World-Changing Idea, co-written with Leah Hunt Hendricks, publishes March 12th. She was the 2023 CBC Massey Lecture and co-founded The Debt Collective, a union of debtors. Luke Messick, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So you write that this fantastic book of yours, Your Money or Your Life, Debt Collection in American Medicine, began with a sense of betrayal. I was wondering if you could talk to us about that sense, what happened, and how did it launch you into an investigation into medical debt? Absolutely. I first started hearing about aggressive medical debt collection, things like lawsuits against patients and wage garnishment and home foreclosures. Probably about five, six years ago, I was picking them up in the newspaper, uh, in part because there was a campaign going on in Baltimore, Maryland, where a lot of community members, unions, activists, nurses were protesting the lawsuits filed by Johns Hopkins Hospital against low-income patients. And I was pretty horrified at what I was reading and gratified by the fact that so many people were standing up against it. But I was curious to know, was this sort of thing happening at my hospital? I didn't think it was. I'd never heard of it happening anywhere in my you know, nearby area. So I just assumed it wasn't, but I just wanted to know. I wanted to make sure. So I went to the local county courthouse, a place I'd never been before uh, and hope rarely to be again. But uh, I started looking up court cases. And there they allowed me to, to type in the names of the hospitals into the, the search function on the county database. And you would see a lot of cases involving the hospital. Now, some of them were malpractice cases in which the hospital or physicians at the hospital were defendants. Some of the cases involved uh, lawsuits against contractors and things like that. But then I saw a bunch of cases where my hospitals, the hospitals where I was training, were suing patients. They were suing them oftentimes for $1,000, $1,500, $2,000 for single visits, sometimes ER visits, hospitalizations. And the 
really amazing thing is that you can see the letters that patients wrote back in response to receiving notice that they were being sued. And they would write really plaintive letters about what was going on. They would say, listen, I'm a single mom, very limited income. I can't afford to pay back $2,000 right now. Some folks on social security disability income, uh, some folks who are recent immigrants. And their pleas really were answered with the slightest degree of lenience, really in the form of onerous payment plans. So instead of being charged $2,000 at once, they would be charged $25 a month for the next seven years for a single visit. If they didn't repay on that schedule, then they would be charged interest at a rate of 10, 11%. They already had late charges and court fees to deal with. And the fact that patients could be placed into such a hole, which we know from years and years of rigorous study leads people to forego care, to miss needed medicines, and to die sooner. The fact that that was happening at my hospital was just really too much to bear. I started talking to other doctors and other nurses and other folks at the hospital about it. They were equally horrified at what was going on. And I thought I had to do something. I didn't know quite what. I didn't think that a series of meetings with C-suite executives where we discussed the merits of doing this or that was going to pan out to that much. So I wrote an op-ed and I sent it around to some newspapers, New York Times, Boston Globe, no interest, Providence Journal, no interest. And then I sent it to Steve Alquist, who is a muckraking journalist who chronicles the really the issues that matter uh, for people's lives in the Rhode Island area, who runs a blog called Uprise Rhode Island. And he was interested, which I was grateful for. He ran it on his blog. I was concerned when I wrote it that I would be the only one to read it. I didn't know what Steve's readership was. I thought it was just folks like me. But then I got a call that very day that it ran from my from my boss at the hospital saying that I, I needed to have some meetings because they had seen it uh, very quickly. And uh, at first, when they met with me, they told me that I was wrong, that the hospital didn't sue patients, that that I was mistaken. I was kind of flummoxed by this. I knew that a lot of people, even administrators, didn't know what hospitals were doing, but I didn't realize just how far that went. I ended up sending them the court records that I had. I said, you you sued 200 people this year. You sued someone two weeks ago. Uh, and they, you know, to their credit, looked into it. And uh, in a matter of weeks, they'd cut off their relationship with the debt collector they had been using, and they dismissed the remainder of the cases. To my knowledge, the folks who were still on those payment plans from the past remained on those payment plans. We couldn't get them to reverse that decision. But so something had changed. Uh, but that was the beginning of my journey into trying to understand what was it that we were doing to patients and how could it have come to pass that bills for hospitalizations became these tradable assets, that they became these you know bludgeons with which we would take people to court and take their homes and take their bank accounts and put them in jail. I really needed to know how this had happened. And so I put on my historian hat and started to look into it that way too. Right. You know, all those things that you just laid out are common practice in America today. And one interesting tidbit towards the end of your book is that lawsuits against patients actually stopped in recent years during the COVID pandemic, but that was because the courts were shut down, not because of any kindness on the on the part of hospital administrators. 
just speak a little bit more about being a doctor. What do you see in the emergency room when you work? Do you see people concerned about debt? It's obviously a really stressful time. Nobody wants to be in the emergency room. But does that added strain come through in your interactions with patients? Yes, absolutely. Patients bring this up. And I guess I wasn't initially as understanding or as attuned to their concerns as I should have been. You know, I'd have patients who I'd ask to stay overnight. One particular patient comes to mind, a woman who was having some chest pain. It was slightly concerning. Her labs were a little concerning for uh, a small heart attack. And I asked her to stay overnight. She turned to her husband. She turned to me. She said, how much is this going to cost? I said, I don't know. I went and asked around anyone who I could find at the hospital, including a lot of folks who'd worked there for decades. And they said, we have no idea. You know, this, mm-hmm. it all depends on her insurance and what they'll cover and how long she stays. And it, there's really no way for us to, to tell her that with any degree of accuracy. And we really have nothing to do with that process. We can have her talk to the social worker or have her talk to, you know, registration and billing, but we, we don't know. Physicians don't know. She was willing to stay, but her concern kind of worried me how long she waited to say yes to this, what I thought was a pretty routine admission. Sometimes it got even worse. I mean, one story that comes to mind is a woman who came in with a widely metastatic cancer, uh, a tremendously painful uh, fungating mass that she had seen six months earlier and had not sought care for. She'd worked in healthcare her whole life. And she told me that she worried about the unbearable cost that she would leave to her family if she did seek care. And so by the time she came in, she knew what her fate was. She just needed some pain relief at that point. And so I I started to understand from, from them, from these patients, that this was something that weighed on them heavily and that I, I just couldn't ignore any longer, that blindness was no longer an excuse. I think a lot of us in medicine have hid behind the reality that we we really don't have much to do with the billing process for our patients. We we used to be, physicians used to be the people delivering the bills to patients and asking them to pay and negotiating with them when they couldn't. That was no halcyon day. That was not a perfect era. People still struggled to pay their bills then. But the fact that we have outsourced that first to hospital administration and then to third-party collectors and to debt buyers certainly hasn't made it any better for patients. Mm-hmm. And that fear of debt, as you as you intimated, basically also stops people from seeking the care they need. Just like she delayed it, you know, some people don't get it at all. So a lot of, of fear preventing people from going to the doctor. Can you give us a very general overview of the medical debt crisis? So just big picture before we zoom into the history and the details, you know, how much money is owed by how many people and in, in what form, like what form does this debt take? Because it's pretty decentralized. Absolutely. And this is something that we've only started to understand in greater detail in recent years. Unfortunately, the, the medical debt crisis, though it has been well understood by people going through it, wasn't really a subject of the medical and public health literature in the way it should be, I'd say until a few years ago. But what we've started to learn is that approximately 100 million Americans owe debt to a medical or dental provider in some form. The amount of debt owed varies depending on the measure you use to try to estimate it. But some of the more recent estimates 
put it at at least 140 billion dollars and it is a it's a huge crisis it it extends over the entire country but it is not evenly felt as you might imagine among every social racial demographic group it's more common in women than men it's more common in black and hispanic americans than in white americans and it's more common in low income americans than in middle and upper class americans although it is a widespread phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, it's a problem for the insured as well as the uninsured. That's something that you make clear. It's also very geographical. Could you talk about that? You know, what state you live in? Yeah, I live in Rhode Island. I grew up in Massachusetts and New York. And as a chance would have it, these are the places where medical debt is the least common. I mean, it's, it's a relative term, but the geographic distribution of medical debt is very wide. Uh, a number of people or the percentage of people with medical debt on their credit reports varies from about 3% in Manhattan, uh, New York County, as it's known, to 27% in Dallas-Fort Worth. So the number of people experiencing this on a day-to-day basis really does vary. And some of those differences can be explained by you know, deep, deep history um, of lack of access to care and uh, threadbare you know, social benefits in the states of the former Confederacy, uh, which extended into the decision about whether or not to expand Medicaid after the NFIB versus Sebelius decision in 2012, where Chief Justice John Roberts said that not every state could be forced to expand Medicaid. That was, uh, that was uh, against states' rights, and every state had to be allowed to make its own decision. As a result, half the states initially declined to expand Medicaid, even though 90% of the cost would be borne by the federal government. And... As a result of that, medical debt declined precipitously, falling by almost one half in those states that did expand Medicaid, allowing a larger number of people to access public insurance, uh, but stayed relatively constant in the states that didn't. Right. And, and you make that really clear that you know, debt is absolutely you know, racialized, it's, it's gendered, Black households hold more medical debt, women especially, or, or households with children have more medical debt. But at the same time, it, it is very widespread. And when I when I said it was decentralized, I was also getting at the fact that we owe it to all sorts of different entities. And that sometimes it doesn't look like medical debt because it's put on a credit card, right? So it's these numbers about how much people owe are actually kind of speculative. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Every estimate we have is inevitably probably an underestimate because you can measure the number of people who have medical debt on their credit reports, but that's an underestimate because not all medical debt is always reported to credit bureaus, especially now that some medical debt will no longer be reported to credit bureaus, thankfully. But as you said, some medical debt is is paid at the point of care by patients and placed onto credit cards or borrowed from family members. And so it's it's extremely difficult to get an accurate count of how many people actually owe medical debt. And the numbers we have, as large as they are, are likely underestimates. And this has been known for a long time. I mean, Elizabeth Warren, before she was a senator, was a legal scholar who studied bankruptcy and and in particular medical debt. And her work from the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s did show that these these bills were were often placed on credit cards and, and would be really hard to tally. And the debates about how many medical bankruptcies there were, how many people were actually placed into bankruptcy as a result of medical debt stem in large part from the fact that it's still really hard to know how how many people are placed in arrears because of seeking care. Yeah. And let's let's talk a little bit about 
you know, just how punitive the collection practices have been. Again, just general overview. I mean, you kind of hinted at this this already. Uh, you write in the beginning of the book that what are known as extraordinary collection processes have become all too ordinary. You already mentioned the phrase aggressive debt collection, which kind of makes you wonder, you know, what gentle debt collection is. Um, you know, as a, a debt abolitionist, I object to even the nicest methods in in the case of of any debts incurred for healthcare. But yeah, what are, what are people, what's happening to people? I mean, you mentioned already, you know, garnishments, lawsuits, but just spell it out a bit. I mean, it can get really dark really quick for people. Yeah. Let's, let's go from, from gentlest, if yeah. you want to ever use yeah. that term to the most, you know, the most uh, aggressive collection measures you can. And let's put it in the context of a specific patient, a patient goes into the ED, gets their care, leaves, a few months later, they get uh, their bill and they don't pay it or don't pay it in full or don't pay it on time. Their bill is referred to a collections agency and that collections agency might start with phone calls. They can call multiple times a day. They can call their workplace. They can put the screws to them that way. They can send a number of letters of increasing um, severity and threatening language. And so those are kind of like the, the first step that most patients experience. After that, if after a time the the debt still isn't paid or satisfied in full, then the hospital and the debt collector and the debt buyer can resort to what are called extraordinary collection actions. That is a legal term used to refer to any number of tactics that can be used against patients um, in medical debt, as they can in patients in other forms of debt. And those include reporting their debt to a credit bureau, right? So that's a negative action on a credit bureau that can affect the patient's ability to get a mortgage, even get a job. Um, their credit can be shot for, for years thereafter. The hospital or debt collector can also file a lawsuit against a patient. Those lawsuits, they almost always win. Patients rarely show up. Even if they do, they you know usually have little recourse. If they lose that lawsuit, as they almost always do, then they can have their wages garnished. So up to 25% of their wages taken out of their paycheck and sent directly to the creditor. They can have a lien placed on their home. That's basically a, a right over that asset that the hospital now has that prevents the patient from doing with their property as they wish. If the debt still isn't satisfied and the hospital wishes to do so, they can foreclose on that property. So take the patient's home away from them. They can seize a patient's bank account and drain it of its funds and direct that directly into the hospital account. Uh, and if all those measures fail, or if the hospital seeks more rapid um, resolution, then they can actually put the patient in jail. Specifically, if a patient fails to show up for a post-judgment hearing where their assets are discovered for the hospital to claim, then the hospital or a judge can seek uh, what's called a body attachment, where a warrant is issued for the patient's arrest and the patient can be placed in jail. So patients can and do face any and all of these measures, uh, these extraordinary collection actions, if they do not pay in time. Right. And I think this is so, I mean, it's important to just kind of frame this as these hospitals who are creditors in this case, and creditors more broadly, and debt collectors being able to sort of hijack the legal system, right? I mean, the courts are essentially, state, state power is essentially working on their behalf to collect on debts that people have incurred because they have gotten sick or injured, <laughs> And that apparatus of the state is helping to impose these very onerous financial burdens on people, you know, just compounding the harm. But it is astonishing. I don't have the exact figures, but a huge amount of the cases that 
work through our local courts, our debt collection cases like this. Yeah, this this was the thing that was most astonishing to me because I never, I didn't consider that our our the state power, as you as you rightfully point out, that state power could be uh, the consequence of a patient seeking care in my hospital. You know, if someone comes into the ED in a moment of profound vulnerability. You know, they're having a heart attack, they're having a stroke, they're in pain, they're you know sometimes unconscious, and the fact that they have also to worry that that decision, sometimes not even a decision to appear at our doorstep would lead them into the courtroom months later, would lead them into a jail cell months later. That was just, that was a, that was a, a, a revelation for me when I should have known before, but, but um, was shocked to learn nonetheless. Yeah. So the dig, as you know, is a socialist podcast, right? So that means that most of our listeners will be in agreement that what we need is a robust and egalitarian public health care system. So I don't want to speak for you, but I'm 100% sure you agree that that's what we need. Absolutely. Uh, and, and in countries with universal health care, medical debt is not a problem, at least not to the same degree. So I'm thinking about Canada, where you know I have um, more experience. You don't, do not go into debt for, for going to the emergency room. Now, dental care is not free. Uh, pharmacare is in mental health services. It's not, not perfect, but definitely a much better arrangement than we have here in the United States. But I guess my question to you is, you know, why should socialists be concerned about medical debt and examine it in this kind of depth when we might be tempted to feel like we know everything we need to know? Like we know the solution is public health care. We know that medical debt is a symptom of a for-profit healthcare system. Like why, why study this topic? Yeah, it's a fair question. Because at the end of the day, I think a lot of the, the thought about what the solution is, single-payer healthcare, is right on. I mean, that would eliminate payments at the point of care if designed correctly and largely eliminate the problem of medical debt. It's a problem that has, to a greater or lesser extent, been solved by every other uh, country in the OECD and many low- and middle-income countries as well. So it's not necessarily a mystery where we should be driving. But I do think there are a few reasons why socialists would want to understand this better and to focus their energies on it. There is a large tapestry of injustice in the United States and in medicine in general. But this is a particularly egregious kind of predation on a particularly vulnerable population that arouses the ire of most everyone. In studying this, I was heartened to learn how easily this crosses ideological boundaries. I mean, people have varied solutions for this, some of which would you know, only tinker at the edges and some of which would, would, I think, solve the problem in a much more meaningful way. But when confronted with the reality of what is going on, folks on the center right, folks in the center people of faith, people of no faith, socialists, anarchists, and even some pretty conservative voices are horrified, horrified that a nonprofit, voluntary, what used to be known as a charity hospital, is taking patients to court, seizing their assets, and placing them in jail. Like that is, that is not something that tends to divide audiences. And I do think having some, some entry point for folks to understand how far we have gone into the uh, era of financialization, privatization, how it has corrupted even our 
most charitable institutions are institutions that we would think were most communal in nature, most devoted to fellow feeling, most overtly outside the capitalist system. These are nonprofit hospitals that have forsworn profits, that have no shareholders, that are descendants of the medieval almshouse tradition, that those are now places where people can be expected to be hounded to the ends of the earth for their debts, I think that does help bring people into the fold. You know, the history, you brought up Canada, the history of transformation is uh, one that often draws on this sense of, of ire, this sense of anger, this sense that things can be better. I mean, Tommy Douglas, when he became the head of a socialist government in Saskatchewan, he proposed the Canadian single-payer healthcare system in Saskatchewan. Doctors went on strike. Doctors said, we will not stand for this. They went on strike only for a time, only for a few weeks before that effort was defeated. And within 10 years, he had helped spread Medicare to the entirety of Canada. I mean, Margaret Atwood, in her Massey lectures 15 years before yours, talks about her own family's experience with this. When her brother was born, her parents had difficulty leaving the hospital because the hospital was essentially detaining them because they couldn't pay. They had to wait until her father got his paycheck and was able to scrape by and then pay that bill in order to even leave the hospital. That problem of medical detention continues to exist today in countries around the world, but it does not exist in Canada because of the efforts of folks like Tommy Douglas and the folks who organized with him to change the system. So I do think this is a rallying cry. This is something we can organize around, and it's something that can be a a bulwark for change. I was going to mention the doctors going on strike in Canada to prevent public health care. Doctors play a paradoxical, you know, contradictory role. And I do think it's it's just worth flagging for the audience that this issue of medical detention was actually also another way you got into this project, right? Yeah. I mean, I didn't start out thinking that I was going to spend most of my time studying medical care in the U.S. I always knew it was a pretty dismal subject. And a lot of the folks who inspired me to go into medicine were people like, uh, Paul Farmer, who work in uh, you know former colonized countries or places like Haiti, which has its own revolutionary tradition where my own father was born. And so th- those were the places that I was most interested in working in. You know, when I finished college, I worked in Rwanda and then in Malawi during graduate school. And I wrote my first book about the British colonial system and post-colonial medicine in Malawi. And those were the places I was most interested in practicing because I thought that, honestly, the the feeling you get when you care for patients in a place where they're not made to pay at the point of care, actually Malawi is one of those places, that you are a member of a public system and, and can be a part of uh, helping patients um, without burdening them with that concern. It makes you feel like you can go to work and wake up in the morning a little easier. So those those were the places I was interested in working, interested in studying. Uh, but as a result of going to medical school in the United States and seeking my specialty training here, you know, I was ensconced in this total institution of the American hospital for about a decade and could not ignore what I was seeing uh, as a result. So obviously, you know, to go back to the the why socialists should care about medical debt question, I have a horse in this race. You know, some listeners will know that I'm the co-founder of the Debt Collective. We call ourselves the First Union for Debtors. We're most known for our work uh, around student debt and student debt cancellation. But the truth is, we actually began trying to organize around medical debt, and this was around 2012, 13, 14, and it we found it challenging to find a strategic foothold. <laughs> because the healthcare system in this country is so 
as I said, decentralized. There are thousands of nonprofit hospitals. There are federal programs that uh, provide health care and regulate healthcare. There are veterans hospitals. There are private practices. I mean, so figuring a, a, out a target can be a, a bit challenging, but there's some incredible sort of moral and political clarity around medical debt. Just as you said, it unites people with a kind of outrage. And as, as we said already, a hundred million people have some kind of medical debt. That's a huge number of people to mobilize for economic and political change. You know, as the years have gone on, we have developed some, I think, really promising strategies at the Debt Collective that we are going to put front and center actually in 2024. So I'm feeling really energized about it. But I think, you know, part of the the power of medical debt and why it's important to think about is that it sticks with people when they've left the hospital, right? That's what we're saying. It stays with people. It continues to uh, have these adverse consequences. But that that also means that that interaction with the healthcare system is still impacting their lives, right? And and might motivate them to become politically engaged. And so it brings a new constituency into the fight for a single payer healthcare system. So, you know, I think it's it's important for us to think about because it's a strategic point of leverage uh, in lots of ways. And even though I have been thinking about medical debt for quite a while, and I got to be interviewed by you for your book. I should also say I, I do make an appearance in this book, so I'm not a total neutral observer. Um, I learned so much from it. I just want to say thank you for doing this. It, it, it really uh, is fascinating and really deepened my understanding of things. You begin with just a really tidy uh, explanation of the sort of three problems with medical debt in the introduction. You've touched on some of them, but maybe just name them briefly here, and then we'll, we'll dig in even further. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th th these are three problems, particular to patients and the patient experience, which is a particular concern of mine because I am a doctor and I treat patients in the emergency department. One is that medical debt ruins patients' financial lives. We know that folks who are have their debt reported to credit bureaus face tremendous burdens in seeking employment, in getting homes. Uh, we know that 100 million Americans, as we went over, have medical debt, and it is the largest single source of debt on patients' credit reports. And so it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous burden on patients. And secondly, it's one that we know affects patients' health, that patients in debt are less likely to seek care. Uh, there have been a number of studies on this, that patients who have uh, medical debt are six times more likely to skip a doctor's visit or a prescription, and that they're more likely to die. Uh, patients with cancer who um, experience financial toxicity, as it's known, who uh, have problems with medical bills, uh, die sooner. And we have ample uh, evidence to uh, support that at this, uh, you know, by now. It's just filled, it's filled the medical literature, and we really don't need to understand it too much more than we do already with, you know, before we solve it. And the third is that it destroys trust. You know, this is... Sometimes it doesn't sound materialist enough to say to talk about things like trust in the relationships in medicine, but I do think they're important. I mean, so much of what we do in medicine asks people to submit themselves, in it's a weird way of saying it, to to really, you know, terrible procedures and medicines that have side effects and long hospital stays. And these are not easy things to ask of people. And if they do not trust that you have their best interests at heart, they will not submit themselves to these. And they shouldn't. I, I, I think that 
we have to work a lot harder to make sure, you know, as physicians, as nurses, nurses have done a lot better job of this than physicians have to, to make sure that patients do know and do have reason to know that we have their best interests at heart. Uh, a recent survey found that still, even today, 70, 77%, 78% of uh, Americans trust that their physician has their best interests at heart at least most of the time. Not everyone, but still a you know a vast majority of the population. We don't have the same numbers as nurses, but we're not we're not terrible. Hospital administrators, that figures 22%, right? And there's reason for that. There's reason for that as we go into in great detail in the in the history. Uh, but I think physicians and even nurses get risk getting dragged down to those levels if we don't, you know, we we don't ally ourselves with patients relatively quickly. Right, right. Just to linger there for a second, I mean, patients have a reason to be mistrustful because the financial motive is real, <laughs> right? And staffing is shaped by those incentives, what treatments are recommended or not. And, you know, so I, I don't think it's not material enough to focus on that. I mean, the corrosive effects of a profit-driven system are really profound, um, so if you want to say more on that, I want to invite you to, but I also want maybe to use that as a stepping stone to my next question, which is, could you describe the different types of hospitals? Because as you've said already, the majority of hospitals that Americans visit are nonprofit. So you would think they were outside. So there's a landscape, right, of nonprofit hospitals, public hospitals, and for-profit hospitals. Just, you know, help people kind of get their minds around that. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps I'll get at the first part of your question by getting at the second. The majority of hospitals in the United States, about 57% of them, there are about 6,000 hospitals in the United States, uh, the majority of them are private, nonprofit hospitals. These are the hospitals that draw their histories from, you know, from almshouses, from ethnic associations, from uh, religious orders. Uh, they're also known as voluntary or charity hospitals. They're not the only hospitals in the United States. The federal government runs hospitals. The Department of Defense runs hospitals. The Indian Health Service runs hospitals. And there are for-profit hospitals. Uh, that uh, oftentimes bought up closing charity hospitals and public hospitals in the 70s and 80s and built these these mammoth conglomerates of for-profit facilities that compose a large portion of hospitals in the United States today. But still, most hospitals in the United States are private, nonprofit hospitals. And the, the distinctions are sometimes lost on people, and people have reason to not know the distinctions because hospitals have worked pretty hard to narrow them. I mean, for the longest time, hospitals, private nonprofit hospitals justified their existence and their tax exemptions on their, their focus on caring for poor patients, oftentimes without seeking recompense. Even in the 1950s, the IRS had a standard that said that a private nonprofit hospital would only receive a tax exemption from the IRS if they agreed to provide care to indigent patients, as they called them, to the extent of their financial ability. And for the next 15 years, hospitals worked mightily to change that standard. And they did, so that what was known as the charity care standard became the community benefit standard, a far laxer standard that the IRS took up at the behest of a single a single IRS attorney Robert Bromberg who said that the charity care hospital was an anachronism that with the passage of Medicare and Medicaid and the rise of private insurance at mid-century that 
no one would really even need it anymore. Who would even need uh, care that was free at the point of service? No one, no one would, no one would need it any longer. Uh, and so he changed the standard so that a hospital could receive a tax exemption and retain its nonprofit tax exempt status as long as it took all paying patients. Paying patients, they could turn away non-emergent care and even at that time emergent care for patients who were not paying. And so that you know th- those distinctions between private for-profit hospital and not-for-profit hospital. You know, it, at the end of the day, for a lot of patients, it's not a distinction that that matters as much as you'd think it would any longer. Right. But what you're saying right here is is really important. I mean, it's it's important for the the organizing. The debt collective is going to be doing moving forward, but it's important because it's a it's a potential point of leverage. The majority of hospitals, which are nonprofit private entities, get their nonprofit status, which is a, a massive tax benefit, in return for providing public benefit, including providing free or reduced cost care to patients who need it, right? And that obligation is law, is law, but it is not followed to the letter of the law. So that's going to be a major theme of this discussion. And it's not something that we you know, necessarily think of as we're approaching a hospital in a state of duress, right? As, hmm, well, is this a nonprofit hospital, a for-profit hospital? Uh, you know, what is the obligation of this entity? Is it meeting this obligation? But it's there in, in IRS code. Yeah, absolutely. I mean that that is it is still a part of the law that hospitals are supposed to provide community benefits, and those can come in multiple forms, including you know care for low income patients uh, without charging them, uh, so either free or discounted care, oftentimes on a sliding scale. But the 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 wild thing is that there's there's very little regulation of of how much or at what level that care should be provided. I mean. Some of the organizing that's already been done has helped to change this in different states in Maryland, which uh, due to the great organizing efforts of uh, community organizations and unions and uh, nurses passed a series of laws about medical debt in 2020 and 2021. They have a floor below which every patient is supposed to have free care. And then uh, hospitals are supposed to take a number of measures to make sure they're never sending bills to folks who fall below that floor. But in most places in the country, uh, hospitals have completely free reign. They can say at what level of income someone should qualify for a free care. So in some places in the country, in some hospitals, that's 75% of the federal poverty level. That's $22,000 for a family of four in 2023. At other hospitals, it's 600% of the federal poverty level. That's $180,000 for a family of four. So these wide, wide disparities really do impact, you know, patients' financial outcomes, patients' ability to access care in the future. Um, and there's, you know, there, there's a historical logic to it. There's a racial logic to it, but there's not a a reasonable logic uh, to these differences. And you're totally right that this is, this is the, this is a leverage point. This is a point at which we should be holding hospitals accountable to their legal obligations. And I would say also to the obligations that we still collectively hold of them, even even these these extra legal obligations that that hospitals are still subject to some measure of shame, some measure of uh, public accountability beyond their legal obligations. Right. Our moral intuitions should be reality, not just the bare bones sort of legal obligations that are imposed on them. But let's let's go way back. So we're going to come back to all of this, but let's let's retrace some of the history you tell in your book, because these laws didn't always exist. It was a bit 
more or, or radically more informal. You go back to the early 19th century and talk about how the relationship between the service provider and the patient, the doctor and the patient was much more, we could say artisanal, I guess. Um, the, and the bill collection, you, you know, you said this already, had to be negotiated in a very direct way. You know, you had to treat somebody and then personally chase them down for payment. So can you talk about that, some of the moral ideas that were there? I mean, there was this sense that people should be treated even if they were poor, but there's a tension as well because doctors need to be paid. So doctors got organized. Can you talk a bit about that history and early kinds of hospitals, what rights patients did or didn't have? So, you know, where did this all sort of begin? Yeah, it, it's it's difficult sometimes to imagine what that world was like, but today, three quarters of physicians work for large corporate entities like large hospital systems, private equity companies, health insurers. But in the early 19th century, most physicians were private solo practitioners. And the medical marketplace was replete with uh, different kinds of practitioners and uh, allopathic providers uh, were, were not, you know, didn't have a monopoly on people's, you know, thoughts about who they should seek care from when they were sick. And even among those providers, there was a, a lot of competition. And so it was hard for patient, it was hard for physicians to charge whatever price they wanted or to always get the payments that they thought they deserved after providing care. And so oftentimes physicians would either have uh, contracts for annual attendance. So like you pay annually for your family to get care or on a fee for service basis, you would pay for every for every visit, those bills would often be presented on a quarterly or semi-annually or annual basis. And so, and the physician would be the one presenting them to the patient and saying, what can you pay of this bill? And they would complain frequently and to whoever who would listen in medical journals and elsewhere about their difficulty in collecting these payments. They worried that patients would often tell them their crops didn't come in or their another family member was sick and that they just didn't have the money at the moment. And physicians themselves talked about their own debts and the prospect of dying in debt because they weren't able to collect adequately from their own patients. Uh, they would write they would write these plaintive verses in medical journals. Book, oh doctor, book your fee, charge, I'll pay it futurely. You know, they they really uh, they really worried about this, and it drove some of the first medical societies that organized largely around trying to have standardized fee schedules and um, standardized policies about patients who did not pay. Some physicians wanted to you know come down hard on those patients and cut them off from care or even seek legal action against them, uh, most of the medical societies continue to include some statements about the need to treat patients uh, for free or for a steep discount if they could not afford to pay, that it was the doctor's duty to do so. This remained in the language. It wasn't always honored. It wasn't always practiced. But this was the, you know, this part of the moral imaginary of being a physician in the United States for much of the 19th century. This began to change, all this began to change by the 20th century as hospitals became more common places to seek care for non-poor patients. Before that, hospitals were really places you would only go if you didn't have anyone else to care for you. Uh, they were derived from almshouses. They weren't you know, centers of 
high-tech scientific inquiry, and uh, they weren't often frequented by people who had any means. That started to change in the 20th century, new surgical techniques, x-rays, new um, forms of organization of physicians and nurses made hospitals much more appealing to middle and upper income patients. And hospitals strove to make themselves appealing to them. Private rooms, new linens, you know, they, they would advertise their, their uh, amenities uh, to upper income patients. And hospitals became kind of more, more and more a locus of where uh, physicians worked, where nurses sought employment. And uh, they too started to change their practices instead of seeking to care only for, you know, what they call charity cases or the worthy poor. You know, they were never providing care for everyone. They, there are many people who they wouldn't allow in their doors, but they, they sought to move from caring for the worthy poor in these large open wards to caring for the paying patient in private rooms. And so they became, you know, they became changed institutions as well. But that was the, that was the backstory that the 19th century was a different country. It was a different world in which physicians themselves had to negotiate with patients in these fraught interactions about how much would be paid and what would happen if the payment wasn't made. And then these hospitals that you're describing, as, as you say, they became more hospitable. They started to appeal to upper and upper middle class folks, patients did not have the right to be treated in them. And of course, we can imagine in the Jim Crow South, these hospitals were not open to all by any means, but there was no right to care. There was affirmatively a right to refuse care, in fact. I mean, this came, this came from a case of uh, the case of Geraldine Cruz in 1934 in Birmingham, Alabama. This went to one of the state courts. Uh, it's a really tragic case of a two-year-old uh, whose father brought her to the hospital. And uh, he noted she was extremely sick. She was having difficulty breathing. She was suffering from diphtheria, a disease we don't see very often uh, thanks to vaccines uh, in the States anymore. But this is a terrible disease. It's basically a, a bacterial illness that causes this sickly gray film to coat your throat until you cannot any longer breathe and you suffocate. Uh, a terrible illness uh, but one for which even at the time in 1934, there was antitoxin available and treatment with uh, endotracheal intubation. So you put a tube down someone's throat, allow them to breathe uh, until the infection is cleared and you live. He brought his daughter to seek care at this hospital and the doctors gave her the antitoxin. But instead of admitting her for the endotracheal intubation, they, they told him to go home. They refused care. Their justification for doing so was that uh, this was a contagious disease and they worried about infecting other patients in the hospital. Uh, but when uh, he brought his daughter home and she died shortly thereafter, tragically, he, he sued the hospital. And the decision that the court made wasn't this narrow ruling that, you know, it was a contagious case and the hospital has a right to try to prevent contagion. They said the hospital has the right to refuse care to whomever it wishes, on whatever grounds it wants. And that was the reigning ideology of the day, and one that continued uh, for a long time, basically until we got to the 1980s. Hospitals could refuse on whatever grounds they wished. And as you mentioned, I mean, hospitals were, until the 1960s, until the passage of Medicare, um, largely segregated in the United States, and so Black patients had to seek care either at Black hospitals or in segregated wards. And so this, you know, the idea of the, the even the voluntary charity hospital was not a reality at which every patient could seek care. And so just maybe to name those sort of big picture 
legal breakthroughs, inadequate as they are, but we have Medicare in the, the 1960s and then EMTALA in the 80s. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the 60s is a huge, huge, is a huge watershed moment in, in this story. Um, by the 1950s, 1960s, uh, you have the rise of private insurance. I mean, Gabe Winant talks about this in his book, These Islands of Social Citizenship, in which some but not all Americans could uh, achieve some measure of social protection. Uh, met the passage of Medicare and Medicaid in 1965 did afford a measure of protection to some low-income Americans and uh, Americans over 65. Uh, you saw a rapid decrease in the number of Americans who were uninsured. Uh, the pace of that decrease would not be matched again until the Medicaid expansion of the 2010s. And so this was a huge moment. I mean, Lyndon Johnson basically said it was like the end of medical debt for elderly patients. That's not true. Uh, Medicare does not cover everything all the time. It, it leaves patients with significant debts, but it, it was a huge breakthrough. Uh, and that law was used, the funding from that law was used as kind of a battering ram to desegregate hospitals throughout the country. A small team of uh, folks in uh, the federal government basically ensured that hospitals would not receive that funding, that, that, that desperately needed funding until they desegregated. And so it did speed the desegregation of American hospitals. But hospitals could still refuse care for non-paying patients. And they did. And one of the major tipping points in this in this history is the early 1980s when medicare and medicaid payments were pretty drastically uh cut or rather a deceleration in reimbursements for uh for care even as care became more expensive and so hospitals started to suffer from uh shortfalls in the 1980s at the start of you know Reagan era deregulation and privatization because they they couldn't they couldn't afford to to care for these these publicly insured patients, and as a result, in large part as a result of this, they they turned away patients at the door, or they would uh, private hospitals would start dumping patients that is transferring them directly to the public hospital, not on medical grounds, and oftentimes while well, they were quite unstable, so patients in active labor who were about to deliver, folks who had been you know, shot or were in trauma victims and were bleeding to death. And this was a, you know, this was an outrage for the physicians working at these public hospitals who saw this tie to patients coming in um, from private facilities at which they could have been treated and could have been saved, basically dying en route. Some of the folks who wrote about this at the time, young physicians like uh, David Himmelstein would go on to start, you know, Physicians for a National Health Program and, and push for single payer healthcare for the rest of their careers. But as a result of some of their documentation of what was going on and publicizing what was happening, this patient dumping phenomenon, EMTALA, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, was written by Pete Stark, a Democrat from Oakland, in part because uh, 32-year-old Eugene Barnes, Oakland resident, had been uh, stabbed and then refused care at a, at a hospital nearby and died as a result. Uh, EMTALA required hospitals and emergency departments in particular to provide screening exams to whoever walked in their door and to stabilize any emergent conditions. They didn't have to treat them thereafter, but they did have to treat emergent conditions. And this is a law with which we still live today. Hospitals complained with some reason that they had another unfunded mandate. They weren't given additional money to live by this edict. And, and patients were not relieved of debts as a result of this, the care they sought that was protected by Amtala, they could seek care, but they could still be hounded to the ends of the earth for it. But those two moments, you know, Medicare and Medicaid passage and Amtala were steps forward, but 
but um, vastly incomplete. Right. I mean, the the picture you paint in the book of patients, you know, in shock, you know, in pain, being turned away from hospitals, sent to other institutions, you know, wasting critical moments. I mean, it's it's something that we do take for granted today. It's like, at least if you go to the emergency room, you might have to wait eight hours, but, you know, they're not going to put you back in the ambulance. <laughs> Yeah, it's almost unthinkable. I mean, to and you can see you can see why the physicians, the young physicians writing about this at the time, were so outraged. I mean, uh, so much of our medical training involves an appreciation and a respect and a fear of time. Time is is in some ways our greatest enemy. When someone comes in with a heart attack, we know that every every hour, every minute we delay, more of their heart muscle dies and it will not be recovered. For same thing for stroke. Every minute we delay and don't get them um, definitive care, uh, more and more of their brain tissue is lost and will not be recovered. Uh, so many, you know, sepsis, same thing. If patients come in with overwhelming infection, every hour you delay getting those antibiotics into their system increases their mortality considerably. So a lot of medical training is basically instilling in you a deep respect for the need for emergent action when it's called for. And the fact that you could you could take a patient coming in with one of these sicknesses and putting them in an ambulance to make their way to some, you know, some public institution uh, somewhere else instead of caring for them then and there is just almost unthinkable now, but it wasn't unthinkable then. And I'm, I'm hoping that there's so much that's, that's thinkable now that will be unthinkable soon. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, so I asked you to describe some of the positive pieces of legislation, Medicare, Medicaid, EMTALA, you know, which just show that we do actually have a public health care system, right? I mean, there are lots of rules governing the provision of health care. There's lots of public money flowing into it. It's just a system that enables a lot of privatization, inefficiency, and facilitates the insurance industry. But kind of woven into your story are two critical moments that you've mentioned. I just kind of want to highlight them for the listeners and tell me if I'm wrong or, or add to this, right? But there are sort of two moments you've touched on that were critical in moving us towards a system that was even more cruel towards debtors. So one was 1969, uh, when the IRS changes its standard for nonprofit hospitals tax exemption. So that's the IRS attorney, Robert Bromberg, who kind of created new rules out of thin air. I mean, this guy has nothing to do with healthcare provision, right? I mean, he's like a, this bureaucrat. <laughs> yeah. Although the American Hospital Association really appreciated his work and hired them as a special tax counsel after he left the IRS. So uh, he became an expert on healthcare provision thereafter, uh, working for the AHA. But at the time, he was just you know a 32-year-old IRS attorney who rewrote these regulations without public comment. Right. So he, you know, takes this idea of nonprofit hospitals having to provide charity care, turns it into a vaguer community benefit standard. Uh, and the other point is something you just mentioned is, is in the early 1980s when reimbursements changed for Medicare and Medicaid, right? And these kind of help set us on a course towards an explosion of, of medical debt. And so you know, despite some of these uh, changes, medical debt is still a major problem. You show in the book that uh, Senator Ed Kennedy is leading hearings in the early 70s. You know, people are still sounding the alarm about uh, medical debt. You even tell this wild story of a guy in 1972 who hijacks a plane, holds a, a stewardess hostage with a fake gun, trying to ransom 200 grand so he can pay for his child's medical treatment because he has a congenital heart defect. You know, so medical debt is in the news. 
Uh, but the problem just keeps getting worse. And you say, you know, the 80s and 90s in particular are a period of sort of rapid growth of uninsured people and also of medical debt as a response. What, what's going on in that period? Why, even after these, you know, break, breakthrough reforms, when medical debt is something people are actually talking about, why does the problem just keep getting worse? Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I think there are a few moments worth spending a little time on. We talked about the 60s. We talked about the passage of Medicare and Medicaid. We talked about the change from the charity care standard to the community benefit standard at the behest of the IRS and the hospital association. The 1980s are really a seminal moment in this story. I mean, before the 1980s, medical debts were held usually by hospitals on their books for years and even decades. And so even if a patient wasn't immediately given uh, free or discounted care, that debt would sit on their books and it wouldn't be pursued too aggressively most often. By the 1980s, things had changed. And we, we mentioned this a bit, but the change in reimbursement for Medicare and Medicaid you know, Medicare went from reimbursing what were called all reasonable costs. Basically, the hospital just sent its bill to Medicare and said, this is what we need for this procedure, this hospitalization. And Medicare didn't ask too many questions to a prospective payment system where uh, hospitals could only get a certain amount and couldn't really dictate the terms of how much they were given. Similar things happened to Medicaid and uh, states began to be much more strict in who would qualify for Medicaid. So as a result, you had, uh, at a time of increasing poverty, a decrease in the number of people enrolled in Medicaid across the country. And hospitals facing losses, essentially every time they cared for a Medicare or Medicaid patient, the cost to um, charge ratio or the, the amount of cost they had to the reimbursement they got, you know, fell to the point where they were losing about you know, 10, 12 cents on the dollar every time they took care of a Medicare or Medicaid patient. And so this was, this was harmful to a number of hospitals, especially ones that took care of more publicly insured patients. Hospitals even today seek to optimize what they call their payer mix. They want those privately insured patients. The privately insured patients will give them uh, the most reimbursement um, for any given episode of care. Different kinds of private insurance are more or less remunerative, but in general, private insurance is better for hospital bottom lines. But hospitals that took care of publicly insured patients were in deep trouble. 9.7% of them closed their doors during the 1980s. A number of public hospitals that closed sold themselves to for-profit hospitals uh, that began to spring up in the 70s and 80s. So that was a that was a hugely influential moment, and what it did for folks in debt was it 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 abandoned that era of lenience. That hospitals said, "We're not going to wait for that money anymore." I mean, it's amazing when you read the trade journals that hospital administrators and folks involved in the debt collection process are much more honest and candid about what their concerns are, what their motivations are, and in those trade journals, you know, every time they interviewed a billing executive in a hospital, they said, we're not going to wait for that money anymore. We're going for it. And so they would, in increasing numbers, uh, assign their debts to third-party collection agencies on a contingency basis, right? So hospitals would assign the debt to a third-party collection agency. The collection agency would seek to collect for a given amount of time, maybe a year, maybe two. And then uh, anything that the collection agency was able to collect, they'd keep a portion of that. Oftentimes at that moment, it was like 40, 30, 40%. It was a pretty high number. Or 
they would sell the debt outright. And so for, you know, sell for pennies on the dollar, sell the debt outright and hand the paper over to the third party. And that third party would then keep anything that they were able to collect uh, thereafter. So that those arrangements became much more common after the 80s and 90s, after those, some of those structural changes we talked about. The, the changes accelerated further um, after one more law, which I, th- I think is worth mentioning, which is the Medicare Modernization Act in the early 2000s, which promoted the use of high deductible health plans. This was uh, the George W. Bush administration. The reigning ideology there was that patients needed skin in the game in order to be uh, discerning consumers of health care. And that was the line they you know, gave to the American public, even as subsequent studies would find that a lot of the folks who were pushing this were folks who stood to benefit a lot from the sale of high deductible health plans. Uh, and those became the most common health plans that Americans had. The deductibles that patients have to pay before any insurance kicks in started to rise rapidly. They've tripled over the last decade, uh, so they continue to rise. And patients, insured patients, faced increasing out-of-pocket costs. And hospitals, which were um, really built to collect from insurance companies, not from individual patients, started to have this, this wave of bad debt they called it a tide of bad debt that they they couldn't collect from insurance companies. They were supposed to collect it from individual patients and they weren't built to do that. Their billing departments weren't built to do that. And so they increasingly turned towards debt collectors to help them uh, do that as well. That was the sales pitch from the debt collection companies. We will do this for you. And so, you know, but, uh, the, the debt collection agency benefited from both of those changes, the changes in the 80s and the changes in the 2000s. And just to go back to the theme here of the connection to patients' trust, I mean, the point is that these these debt collectors have no relationship to providing health care. And so it's not just one removed to now you're in the hospital administrator office, now you're out with some private debt collector who has nothing to do with healthcare provision, is simply in the business of of hounding people to pay. Yeah, you're you're a figure on a spreadsheet. I mean, I, I I go into detail about some of the individual debt collection companies in the book. I devote a whole chapter to chronicling the careers of a few of them, not because I think they're, you know, individually heinous actors. Um, I think we we do a disservice, as most of the folks who listen to this podcast probably agree. We do a disservice when we privilege individual agency over structure, but but their their careers do highlight some of these structural changes. And for a lot of these, you know, prominent debt collectors. They, you know, they're buying and selling paper. They're making relationships with um, hospital executives to sell them or assign their debts. Um, they really have nothing to do with healthcare. They've never been doctors. They've never been nurses. They've never been techs. They've never been involved in the healthcare process. Uh, but they hold sway over the fates of so many of our patients. So yeah, it, it is. It is increasingly a story of financialization, of alienation, of of increasing distance uh, between patient, patient and physician in the bill. Like those things become increasingly divorced and physicians for our part we've we've completely divorced ourselves from this process um, and basically left uh, patients to the devices of these third parties and when you say spreadsheet it's literal I mean so part of why I came into this story is because I through my work with what is now the debt collective started something called the rolling Jubilee which was this very um, sort of spectacular way of revealing these shadowy, debt markets. Uh, and so in the aftermath of Occupy, we crowdfunded money and basically bought 
debt on the secondary market, just like a debt collector would, but instead of collecting on it, we abolished it. Um, and so over the years, we've actually used this tactic in, in different ways, but it was really shocking. I mean, if I flash back to 2012, when we bought our first portfolio of medical debt, that what we literally got was a spreadsheet with people's names, their contact information, you know, the balance they owe, and, and a legal license to harass them. You know, and of course we didn't do that. Instead, we sent them letters and said, "Hey, we've abolished your debt because we think it's morally illegitimate." Uh, you know, do you want to join a political movement to fight for public goods? Um, but you know, it was just it it was incredibly sort of eye opening in that moment to just see the way that you know people's lives are are reduced and and bought and sold and traded as assets. I'm so glad we got to that part of the story. I mean, do you want, can you just go into a bit more detail about that? I mean, I devote like a whole chapter to this in the book. Yeah. And I'm not going to tell your story, but like, and I know you've told about in in, uh, in the past, but like the 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 relationship between that moment and Occupy and the years that followed in your movement for student debt cancellation. I think that there's this this particular moment when you you found a way to buy medical debt, which is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> it's extremely challenging. I I guess I'm just wondering how 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 that idea came about and what relationship that had to the organizing work you've done over the last decade. I mean, so much of you know what organizers have to do, you know, and this is a cross cause is is uh, cast away stigma, cast away shame, right? I mean, so many social movements try to do this. And there's a huge amount of stigma around poverty in this country and around debt in particular. There's a long history of debtors being painted as unworthy, as you said, as deadbeats. And, and that's even true for medical debt, which should be the sort of the exception to the rule, right? I mean, you don't choose to get, get sick. You don't choose to uh, have an injury, you know, but nevertheless, that that shame is there. Uh, and, and again, these financial mechanisms are really invisible. I mean, you're, you've mentioned financialization. I mean, financialization is not something that's in your face. We feel the effects of it every day and our lack of public goods and the ubiquity of austerity, you know, and the fact that our lives are in hawk in so many ways. But, you know, it, it's just not it's, it's just hard to make these things really sort of uh, visible. But yes, yeah, at Occupy, we began discussing the fact that our economy was financialized. I mean, this was, of course, in the aftermath of the, the bank bailouts. You know, the old slogan of Occupy was banks got bailed out, we got sold out. And so a group of us wanted to have what we call the bailout of the people by the people. Okay, well, the government's going to bail out the banks. Well, we're going to do what the government should do and bail out each other. Getting our hands on on debt was not easy. You know, we had to sort of earn the trust of some some debt buyers. But then once we did it, and once we made this announcement, what was amazing was just the outpouring of enthusiasm and and support and kind of, you know, people coming up and, and saying, hey, you know, I'm in the same boat. You know, I'm also in debt. I have medical debt. I have student debt. It became a kind of beacon that all these people sort of came out of the, the work uh, for. However, you know, my comrades and I always knew that we, we didn't want to, you know, just keep doing the Rolling Jubilee, right? We could not buy and erase all the odious debt that's out there. We ultimately need structural change. We need new laws. What we need is, you know, the passage of Medicare for all. <laughs> if we really want to address the medical debt crisis, not just a bunch of sort of charitable actions. And so, you know, our goal was always to use this tactic in order to build an active political movement. And yet it's something, it is a tactic that we have used uh, in different ways and used it 
not just to draw attention to the crisis of medical debt, but we've raised millions of dollars in payday loans and probation debt. We just erased $10 million of, of debt held by Morehouse College. So we wiped out something like $10 million of, of debt owed by thousands of current and former Morehouse students. What that means is that these are folks who will be able to get their transcripts, get their diplomas, get things that they could not get as punishment for owing what in some cases was hundreds of dollars or in some cases tens of thousands of dollars to the university. And in every case, we have gotten these debts for pennies on the dollar. <laughs> uh, or in some cases for for free if we've applied political pressure and, and forced entities to cancel them. So, it, and it really was a groundbreaking thing for us to do that. I mean, nobody had ever sort of engaged with these markets as critics of them. But our eye, you know, always has to be on the prize of that structural transformation. And how do we relieve the debt burdens that we can and keep calling attention to these mechanisms and how they operate while building political power? I'm Naomi Klein, and you're listening to The Dig, my go-to podcast for the most thoughtful, in-depth conversation on the left. It's an incredible place to be exposed to new ideas and new writing And if you can, please become a sustaining supporter at Patreon. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Jewish Currents, the historic magazine of the Jewish left, published quarterly, in print, and daily online. Subscribe today to receive their upcoming special issue, a book-length reader featuring work published online after October 7th, alongside newly relevant archival pieces with new introductions. Subscriptions start at $48 per year, but in a special offer for DIG listeners, they're 50% off with the code DIG2024. That's one word, DIG CAPS 2024, no spaces. You'll also receive Jewish Currents exclusive winter gift, Kaula Ibrahim's play, A Knock on the Roof, which follows a woman in Gaza facing the horror of imminent Israeli bombardment. DIG listeners will be especially interested in Jewish Currents podcast, On the Nose. Recent episodes feature expert discussions about South Africa's case at the ICJ charging Israel with genocide and labor unions' fraught relationship with Zionism. Find On the Nose wherever you get your podcasts, and please subscribe to Jewish Currents. We've gotten so many compliments about the work that we've been doing over the past few months here at The Dig, and that work simply would not be possible without the analysis provided by Jewish Currents. Subscriptions start at $48 per year. But in that special offer for DIG listeners, they are 50% off with the code DIG2024. That's one word, D-I-G-2024, capital D-I-G-2024. I want us to end with some of these strategy questions. So I'm going to have a swerve again, if that's okay, because I think, you know, ultimately, what we need is, you know, strategic interventions to to change the the systems that we're analyzing right now. You know, on the debt collection front, and this is one thing that honestly was surprising to me, is just the fact that the economics of debt cancellation. Sorry, that that was a <laughs> Freudian slip of somebody who's aiming at debt abolition as a goal. Uh, so the economics of debt collection are uh, are not exactly straightforward, right? So hospitals, and, and you show this really convincingly, they don't actually make that much money from selling their debt to these debt collectors. Now, the debt collectors can sometimes make a lot of money, and, and Wall Street is sometimes in, invested in these debt collectors. So, you know, it's not to say that that's not a big industry, it is. But 
even if it's made some debt collectors very rich. The fact is, you know, for the hospital industry, it doesn't seem to be an essential part of their overall revenue spread. So then I guess I just want us to reflect for a minute here on like, why the hell it is happening at the scale it's happening and with the viciousness it's happening with, you know, why are they committed to these third-party debt collectors? Why are they hounding patients? And also, if you could talk about the sort of counterintuitive point you make, which is that it's the most well-heeled hospitals engaging in these practices too. Yeah. Yeah. This this question of why in light of the, the economics uh, of debt collection was an animating one and one that I, I continue to pursue, to be honest, but there are some, there are some suggestive answers here. I mean, so why, why do hospitals do this? It's not because it's remunerative. Hospitals that, you know, garnish the wages of low-income patients, sometimes their own employees. Yeah. That, let's just uh, let, highlight that. Death. I mean, there, in so many cases, it's extremely distressing. Hospitals are providing care to their low in, low wage employees because people get sick and then garnishing their low wages and hounding them. Yeah. I mean, some of the investigative journalists who show up to courtrooms have been surprised to see that they're filled with people in scrubs who are coming uh, from work to their court cases about debts they owe to their own hospital for care sought there. So so why are hospitals doing this? Why are they garnishing wages, including their own employees? Well, it's it's not because it makes them a ton of money. I mean, the the good study that was done a couple of years ago of every one of these cases in Virginia found that the average hospital that sought to do this made about 0.1% of its revenue on the tactic by garnishing wages. Uh, the hospital that did this the most in the state, uh, Mary Washington and Fredericksburg, made 0.2% of its revenue by this practice. Uh, one of the large cases of a hospital that continued to sue patients um, was the Mayo Clinic, uh, which continued to sue patients even after the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And they made 0.01% of their revenue through lawsuits. So why would hospitals you know, resort to this level of uh, aggression and state power uh, when it really doesn't help them stay afloat? I mean, you know, you might assume that the hospitals that are doing this, like you said, might maybe they're the ones that are about to go under. Well, they're not. They're, you know, Mayo Clinic isn't going under. They're, you know, these are well-heeled institutions, oftentimes with very comfortable operating margins. Uh, even if you were about to go under uh, and hospitals do close, it, this isn't going to save you. This is, you know, I, I say in the book, it's like, it's like trying to bail out the Titanic with a pail of water, you know, and then throwing it into a, a crowded lifeboat. You know, you might, you might capsize the lifeboat, but you're not going to save the Titanic. So it's really not worthwhile. And there have been a few reasons proposed by interlocutors, people I interviewed, and that came up in the archival research about why this even exists. Why, did it, why does it happen? One is that it's, it, it has to do with the distance between anyone who has a clinical and social bond and the decision-making about how aggressively to pursue the patient. And so if only a couple administrators in a C-suite are contracting with a third-party debt collector, which has a series of increasingly aggressive debt collection tactics it'll take, then most of the folks working at the hospital really have no idea. And unless that individual in the C-suite or the billing office is attuned to it or paying attention or cares, uh, then, then those aggressive debt collection measures can go forth with very little input from any of the staff at the hospital. I think that's a, a powerful motive. And I think part of the proof of that is that as soon as people realize what's going on at most facilities, 
they can put an end to the most egregious practices pretty quickly. Not the existence of debt or the pursuit of debt, but the the those extraordinary collection actions tend to fall off pretty precipitously. I mean, in, in Maryland, we've seen like the, the court system is almost almost none of these cases are being filed anymore. In, in part because of the laws that have been passed, but also in part because of the the public attention to them. Another thing, though, and this was proposed by a trial attorney named Dickie Scruggs, a Mississippi trial attorney who made a fortune filing class action lawsuits against shipyard companies for asbestos and big tobacco in the 80s and 90s. Uh, He started suing hospitals in the 2000s, saying that they weren't meeting their obligations as charitable institutions by pursuing patients so aggressively. He lost those cases because there was at the time no right to financial assistance in a way that actually changed with the passage of the Affordable Care Act. So now there is that point of leverage that I think could be used more successfully. But he said, he thought that hospitals were doing this not necessarily to collect money from individual patients, but to prevent low-income patients from showing up in the first place. It was a basically a, a sly measure to improve their payer mix. And we know that pa- patients know where they're welcome and where they're not. I mean, patients know where they'll be hounded and where they won't. You know, there's a reason why um, low-income patients show up more often to public hospitals or to private nonprofits that don't employ these measures. And and so I think there is some truth in that. There there have been explicit statements to that effect in some depositions that I've seen you know, out of private hospitals in Washington State. But I think, you know, to what extent is this an overtly articulated uh, tactic is is still not clear, but I do think it, it definitely has that effect in terms of where patients will seek care. Yeah, it has the deterrent effect, even if it's not explicitly named as such, though I increasingly, you know, am convinced that, you know, Debt is a form of of social control. I mean, we saw this right in the Republican lawsuits against student debt cancellation. Well, why do they object to it? Well, because workers are going to be more free to move to other jobs because it will improve, you know, racial equity uh, because people won't join the military, right? So it was this moment when they sort of said all the things out loud that we had been suspecting that was, were were their motivations all along, uh, which is kind of interesting, right? When the when the rubber finally hit the road and they thought there was going to be this massive outlay of debt relief. They suddenly said all of that evil stuff, you know, and, and here's another example of it. Um, you know, I, I want to ask you where insurers fit into this story. You've, you've mentioned them a bit, um, but obviously, I mean, in a way, you know, part of what gives hospitals a free pass, right, is that they are, at least they're saving your life in that critical moment. Like it's the insurer just seems like a total parasite. And I do think we need to shift some of the blame on the hospitals. I think strategically that's really important, but let's, you know, talk about insurers for a moment. You know, you mentioned the importance of uh, high deductible plans in jacking up medical debt, which makes total intuitive sense, right? If you're insurance deductible is $9,000, which is what mine is, but you don't have $400 for a medical emergency. I don't know, you know, how are you ever going to pay to, to, to meet your deductible. But you have this quote that I think it's worth reading here um, from uh, the executive director of policy for Blue Cross Blue Shield. And in 1986, he said the following, hospitals that fail to vigorously pursue their bad debt population are contributors to the problem. After all, the real effect of debt forgiveness by hospitals is to decrease incentives to purchase health insurance. Why buy health insurance if it is not necessary to pay for it? He hit um, the nail on the head right there. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, I think, definitely important to bring in other actors here. And we focus a lot on hospitals. But, you know, as even folks like uh, Melissa Jacoby and Elizabeth Warren have written like 20 years ago, focusing on hospital misbehavior or individual actors is, 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 is always going to be incomplete. There are a lot of middlemen in healthcare. There's an increasing number of middlemen in healthcare, uh, pharmacy benefit managers, private equity companies, um, you know, brand name drug companies and, and insurance companies. And some and insurance companies play a large role in this story um, because, you know, basically when a, when a patient can't afford to pay their bill, the question becomes who pays then? Who foots this bill? And it's, it's, it, we've had varied answers to that questions over time. In the 19th century, it was the physicians who, you know, who footed the bill and had to make up the difference themselves or go into debt themselves. In the early 20th century, hospitals took on that measure themselves as a, a part of their mission. Um, with the rise of public insurance uh, for a time in the 60s and 70s, it was Medicare and Medicaid who, you know, paid any reasonable cost that the hospital saw fit to charge them. Uh, in the 1980s, though, when hospitals would no, uh, when hospitals could no longer turn to public insurers to pay the cost that they thought they needed to cover, it was private insurers for a time. You know, hospitals would increase their list prices and seek to have uh, private insurers cover those costs and kind of make up the difference uh, for for publicly insured patients who who weren't covering their costs. But by the 90s, you know, that's part of what drove the rise of HMOs health maintenance organizations, private insurance companies that that sought to cut costs quite uh, vigorously. And then in the 2000s, after the backlash against HMOs, it drove the rise of high deductible health plans, an era that we are still living in today. Uh, and so health insurers, you know, for a time were the folks footing the bill, but that was the very era when Cahodes was writing that, uh, that piece that you quoted from, where he was extremely worried about hospitals uh, not doing enough to uh, collect aggressively. So basically, whoever is, is, is footing that bill, if it's not the patient, is the one advocating most vigorously uh, to make sure that it is the patient, unless, unless the patients themselves and, and folks who are their allies are organizing uh, to make sure it isn't the patient. So you know, this, it's a big game of football to try to see who, you know, who's holding the bill at the end. And insurers have been pretty successful in making sure that it's not them, at least not for long. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one thing that comes through in the book is sort of the history of reforms, laws. I mean, it, this is the history of medical debt, which it really is a sort of legal history at the same time that are inadequate, right? Uh, and I just wondered if you wanted to touch a bit on attempts to regulate debt collection, because that's that's sort of the mainstream liberal approach, right? So to go back to the beginning when we were talking about the difference between aggressive versus gentle debt collection. I mean, I think there are some people who think, well, if we could just get rid of the worst cases, right? Okay, we definitely don't want people who owe their medical bills to be sued, you know, to have, you know, the most adverse consequences inflicted on them, you know, but people should pay if they can. And, um, you know, debt collectors should be allowed to call, they just shouldn't be allowed to harass people at their workplace or whatever. I mean, could you talk about some attempts? um, Yeah, to sort of rein in the industry and why they're not to ask a leading question, but why they're inadequate. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's, that's definitely a fair conclusion. Uh, and it's, it's really the only conclusion that one can draw from this history is that uh, these attempts are, are, are inadequate. There have been laws regulating debt collection, not only medical debt collection, but other forms of consumer debt collection for decades. The 1970s saw some of the most um, prominent ones, the ones we still live with today, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act in the late 70s, 
um, more uh, that were passed in the 2000s, more that were passed along with Dodd-Frank in 2010. Um, and these, as you say, these federal laws largely seem to exist to maintain a certain sense of decorum over the phone when p- patients are contacted by their creditors, that they cannot be contacted after a certain time, that they you know, could only be contacted a certain number of times, that abusive language shouldn't be used. These laws weren't always honored. I mean, we have countless examples in the book of patients facing abusive language and you know, harassing calls uh, from debt collectors, from medical debt collectors, and some, you know, some slaps on the wrist by the FTC or the CFPB as a result in the form of fines. But uh, that that's really the extent of those federal regulations uh, thus far. State laws have tried to go further, um, largely as a result of organizing efforts. You know, I'll give the example of Connecticut after organizing around Yale New Haven Hospital, which was suing and placing liens on the homes of vast numbers of low-income patients in New Haven. And uh, the SEIU and other unions and organizers sought to, uh, you know, prevent these practices. Uh, they were able to change Connecticut state law in a way that did limit the amount of debt that could be collected, you know, did limit the amount that could be collected through payment plans in a given month uh, as a percentage of patients' incomes. And so these these were smaller measures, I would say more meaningful than the federal measures that were done, but they didn't halt the the lawsuits against patients forever. I mean, they the public attention did slow it for a time, but, you know, in the 2010s, we saw that in Connecticut, you know, tens of thousands of people were being sued for medical debts still. So it hasn't proven an enduring solution. These measures, these, these, these piecemeal reforms, you know, did make a difference for some patients, but they, they really aren't achieving the kind of structural transformation we seek. Yeah. And just to flag again, you know, Yale University Hospital, right? Not some small fly by night operation, but another big esteemed university medical center that was engaging in these practices. And it was employees and patients who had to put a stop to them. Yeah. I mean, I I focused a lot on this particular episode because it is, I think it was a a big turning point in public attention. It was one of the first times that it became to, into the public's knowledge that this was what was going on uh, because it became the subject of a series of Wall Street Journal exposés. But it was only that because it was the the subject of exposés by local journalists writing in, you know, alt-weeklies in the, in the city of New Haven. And it did result in some changes. I mean, there were folks who had, there was a 77-year-old man who had been sued by Yale New Haven and had, had, had his debt collected for the last 20 years for a single visit his wife, his now deceased wife had taken there uh, in 1982. So, you know, these were really onerous practices that, the exposure and the changes in state law did help relieve some patients of that debt. But, you know, the fact that we're still seeing patients being sued in the state of Connecticut uh, all these many years later does tell us that we have to do something, something more. Let's, let's linger on the fact that what happened at Yale and is happening still in Connecticut is happening across the country at these nonprofit hospitals. So I just want to go back to the, the idea of charity care, because as you pointed out a few minutes ago, these Regulations were made a little bit more robust with the passage of the Affordable Care Act in in 2010. So can you talk about that? And let's just talk about some of the things you you actually get into in some detail, just about the fact that so many hospitals are not meeting their obligations. The tax exemptions they're receiving, uh, financially speaking, are far in excess of the charity care that they provide to people. Um, So you quote a 2021 
study published by Health Affairs that found that nonprofit hospitals devote a paltry 2.5% of their spending to charity care. And what's really shocking is that they found that was less than what for-profit hospitals spend. For-profit hospitals reached a whopping 3.8%. So yeah, what, what are the implications of the ACA and what's going on here? Absolutely. The ACA is an important law for a couple of reasons. One is the expansion of Medicaid. Imperfect and piecemeal as it was, it did decrease the flow of medical debt in states that expanded Medicaid. The second is that it does include a provision that requires nonprofit hospitals as a standard, as a condition of their tax exemption to publicize and author financial assistance policies. These policies should lay out at what level of income patients should qualify for free and discounted care. And that was actually partially a result of the work of, of Dickie Scruggs in those failed class action lawsuits. He ended up going to federal prison for bribing a judge, uh, but he was really well connected. He was uh, related by marriage to Trent Lott, who was the Senate Majority Leader, and knew Chuck Grassley, who ended up taking this up as an issue when the ACA was written. And even though Grassley voted against the ACA, his preference that this FAP provision be included in the law was honored. And so right now, hospitals are supposed to have these policies written. Usually they're hard to find. You have to go online and hunt pretty pretty long and hard to find some of them. They're supposed to be readily available, but they're not always. And through the work of some really dogged researchers, um, I want to point out Dollar Four, an organization started by uh, Jared Walker, a former bartender whose own family had dealt with medical debt, who organized a group of volunteers to build this tool online. So if you go to Dollar Four, uh, their website, you can find out by typing in you know, what hospital you're looking at and what your income is, whether you qualify for this free or discounted care. That's their work. That's them looking through PDFs of 6,000 hospitals and figuring out what those thresholds are. Otherwise, we'd all be up a creek trying to find those documents ourselves. And we were able to work with them. We're working on a paper right now to, to analyze this and see what, what are these cutoffs? What is the is there any logic to them? Is there any reason to them? And as I mentioned, it's, it's, there's a huge variety. I mean, it, it extends from 75% to 600% for free care. Of the federal poverty um, line. Of the federal poverty level, right? So that's, you know, from $22,000 from a family of four to $180,000 for a family of four. Um, and there's regional variations in that as well. Uh, the, the South and the Mountain West have these uh, really low cutoffs for free and discounted care. So folks who seek care in those areas um, have less access to uh, financial assistance. People who live in areas with high levels of poverty have low lower cutoffs, probably as a result of higher demand. But you know, if you live in an area with concentrated poverty, you'll have less access to the free and discounted care. So there is uh, there are there are systemic problems with the financial assistance policy as it's written. But thanks to the work of of Jared and others, we we've come to realize that. And that I think that is another point of leverage that that some degree of systematization of these cutoffs could be done. I mean, this isn't a this isn't a long-term solution. This isn't where we're driving at, right? But but at least we could make we could make some of these disparities uh, disappear on our way to single payer. Right. And of course the implication is if people were getting the free care that they are entitled to, they wouldn't have medical debt. But it also implies that a lot of the medical debt that is circulating out there destroying people's lives is illegal, is illegitimate, right? It is the product of hospitals not meeting the uh, requirements set by the IRS, you know, in part because they've made it impossible for patients to figure out 
how to navigate bureaucracy. This is an, yeah, that's an amazing, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. That's an amazing part of the story too, because it's another part of the legal history that I think is worth going into in a little bit of detail because um, that when the, when the ACA was passed, it, it stated that hospitals are supposed to take reasonable efforts to ensure that patients do not qualify for this assistance before they resort to extraordinary collection actions. So before reporting them to a credit bureau or taking them to court or any of that stuff, you're supposed to take what are called reasonable efforts to determine whether patients qualify. Now, hospitals worked really hard alongside debt collectors to help define what a reasonable effort was. I'm working on a paper with some um, really amazing undergrads looking into the public comments that the IRS fielded from hospitals, from debt collectors, from community organizations when it was deliberating exactly what reasonable efforts would entail. And we found that hospitals were almost always allied with debt collectors. They were, they were, they were a block in these comments about what exactly reasonable efforts should entail, what an extraordinary collection action should be, and how much uh, work they should be forced to do to determine whether a patient qualified before they went ahead with with lawsuits and with negative actions on credit reports, and you know so they didn't win everything they wanted, but they they did win the definition of reasonable efforts. Basically, all they have to do is make sure that patients are informed at some point about the existence of a financial assistance policy, and that if they submit a financial and they submit an application, that it's processed. Now, those applications can be as onerous as you want them to be. I mean, Jared. Uh, knows this better than anyone because he uh, his organization not only has that tool, but they will help anyone who wants apply for financial assistance from their hospital, and they'll do it for free. Right? They do it out of you know they they do it out of solidarity. Um, and he's found in the course of doing this work for thousands of people that these applications can be onerous. They ask for all sorts of documents. They ask for them uh, in a specific amount of time. And they require you to submit them sometimes by snail mail or fax. Who has a fax machine, right? Or uh, tell them if you've started a GoFundMe campaign, you know, so have you, have you raised enough money so we can take that too? Um, so these, these are really onerous processes that, uh, that hospitals can use. And they're not required to do any proactive work to determine whether someone qualifies. And there's easy ways for hospitals to do this. Hospitals can get a hold of your tax return if they want to. They just basically call up the IRS and get it. They could do that. Hospitals can see whether you are a part of a public program like uh, WIC, like Women, Infants, and Children Benefits, or SNAP Benefits, Food Stamps, or other public benefit programs that have income cutoffs that are similar to or below most hospitals' income cutoffs, right? So if you qualify for WIC or food stamps, you're probably going to qualify for your hospital's free care. And some states have started to require hospitals to do this, but the federal government doesn't. So there's so much we can do to help to make hospitals, you know, do their due diligence and make sure that uh, folks aren't charged when they shouldn't be charged. Right. I mean, this gets to hospital is bad actor because this is where bureaucracy is weaponized as a deterrent strategy. I mean, I don't think there's another explanation. When we say, you know, you have to be shown the financial assistance policy, it could be on an iPad that you're swiping when you're in the sick bed, right? In no state of mind to really take it in. And there are all sorts of ways, as you're saying, to be proactive. I mean, the fact that so many hospitals are suing their own workforce, (laughs) those are people who they should know are, you know, making 
uh, low wages and, and likely entitled to some kind of discount. So, you know, I think this is an important sort of moment for that, you know, why, why hospitals um, need to be in the mix as a target alongside the insurance industry, um, you know, and, and all of the politicians who are, who take corporate donations and, and block the idea of universal health care. Another thing hospitals do, though, of course, is squeeze the workforce. And you would know this really well. And you know, it's sort of interesting, uh, you know, this is off topic, I guess, from your book, but it, but it's not. I mean, you know, because ultimately what we're trying to do is create solidarity between physicians, between nurses, between other staff, between patients, between medical debtors who are no longer being seen or don't consider themselves patients any longer. Um, you know, what what are the conditions working in a hospital today? I mean, I'm just thinking about the way financialization has to impact your day to day. I mean, you know, we can read a lot about private equity coming in and taking over emergency rooms or AI being implemented. I mean, I just was reading an article about the big for-profit healthcare firm down here in North Carolina, HCA, and how they're using AI and chat GPT um, to speed their doctors up. I don't know. Yeah. What, I'm just curious if you have any, anything to say on this front and yeah, how it trickles down to the patient experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're facing. I think I think I'd never realized the the some of the connections, uh, some of the structural connections between some of the problems I was writing about in you know post colonial and colonial era African medicine, and some of the things I'm dealing with on a day to day to day basis now uh, in the U.S. Uh, you know, when I wrote about Malawi, or when I was writing about colonial, you know, British colonial era. I wrote about how the colonial officials would often really use their rhetoric to to justify scarcity, to justify continued scarcity, to say that nothing more could be done, um, even as they were extracting massive debt repayments out of uh, impoverished colonized peoples uh, for you know infrastructure like railroads that were built basically to to benefit financiers in the home country. So I. I thought about that scarcity a lot, but I was grateful to a certain extent that I didn't have to deal with as much in the U.S. until COVID hit, when scarcity became basically a way of life. We didn't have enough PPE at first, and that was a constructed scarcity. We didn't have enough medicines. You know, as supply chain bottlenecks became a, a reality in our everyday work. Every day we'd come into the hospital and find out we're out of this antibiotic, we're out of this anesthetic, we're out of that uh, supply. And then the I think the most meaningful scarcity became uh, our own workers, specifically nurses. We, 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 there were never enough nurses. Um, some nurses left the profession. Some nurses um, went to become uh, travel nurses as they became a scarce commodity and um, different hospital systems basically bid for their uh, services. Uh, but their work was so taxing and so difficult and so dangerous in the context, especially in the context of COVID, that they became truly scarce. And we're still living with that today. I mean, even at most of our hospitals, the emergency departments are constantly full. You walk into an ED and you're waiting longer than ever. I saw patients at one of the hospitals I worked in, not the hospital I work in now, but I saw a patient come in uh, 12 hours after waiting in the waiting room saying he was no longer in pain. And I said, why? He said, I think I passed my stone. I was in their bathroom vom vomiting for 12 hours, but I think I finally passed it. And the fact that he was, you know, so close to relief being in our waiting room, but never got it until basically the natural course of his illness continued, uh, 
that, that was just, that was awful. That was, you know, that's something, and that's something we deal with, still deal with every day uh, in our hospitals. To a certain extent, I think there've been some uh, sanguine developments in uh, this, in this world, uh, largely because organizing has kind of come mainstream and hospitals are, weren't really a place where at least physicians were known to organize nurses and other staff and uh, sanitary workers were were organized food service workers were organized but physicians we saw ourselves as like kind of a a world apart that we you know that wasn't that wasn't appropriate for us that we were independent professionals but i think more and more we've come to realize that we're not special we're workers too and and we work for these large organizations we and we don't determine the the conditions that we work in uh and so we we should be a part of this movement to to organize and to push for better working conditions. And so uh, young physicians in particular have done this, um, uh, resident physicians still in training and really um, at the mercy of their hospital uh, systems have organized in large measure in these landslide votes at some of the largest medical institutions across the country, even in the last couple of years. So, you know, things are starting to change, I think, uh, in some salutary ways, but we're, we're dealing with, with, with huge uh, huge shortages and huge challenges every day. I think it's important to to also, you know, just acknowledge that some of the labor shortages we're experiencing, you know, they're also happening in Canada, they're happening in the UK. In this sense, you know, public a public system isn't a panacea if it's not well funded, if it's not cared for, if it's not invested in. And so that's that's the horizon too, not to have a paltry fraying public healthcare system, which makes a private system look enticing, right? But one that's that's really robust and actually takes care of people. You know, I, one thing I so appreciated about your book was the the attention to organizing. I mean, so your own story of, you know, speaking truth to power at the Providence Hospital where you worked and saying, hey, you're suing patients. I actually know the facts. I went to the courthouse. <laughs> I looked it up. You know, you're doing this. You're telling the story of Dollar Four. I do want to say to listeners that I, I really think that that's an incredibly useful resource the work of the Debt Collective, the amazing story of Yale New Haven Health, um, you know, telling the story of what was happening at John Hopkins and in Maryland, you know, and and what it reminds us is that organized people can get traction on this issue. And so I just wanted to to invite you to share any sort of strategic thoughts that you might have. I mean, I'm curious to hear your thoughts more on the hospital uh, as a as a site of struggle and how to sort of maybe overcome. I mean, I think you know, you just spoke to it a bit, but there has been a historic sort of divide between physicians and everyone else. As we mentioned in the beginning, those doctors went on strike, you know, last century to, to block universal healthcare in Canada, not to fight for it. Um, but maybe we could tell a different story in the U.S. Maybe something different can happen. It certainly seems that physicians also have something to gain. Yeah, the the history of the, the politics of the profession are, um, are pretty dismal reading, the profession I'm talking about, medicine. And physicians in particular. I mean, the American Medical Association was for most of its history and still today a force against single payer healthcare and organized its members to the extent of its ability to make sure that that did not pass decisively in some cases, like in the mid 40s, right after World War II, when most countries, like including the UK, were passing their national health systems. And organized efforts were made to do the same thing in the United States. Some of that has started to change. I mean, the American College of Physicians has endorsed single-payer health care. Um, the um, uh, American Public Health Association has endorsed single-payer. Uh, National Nurses United, the largest nurses union in the country, has endorsed single-payer. And not just endorsed them in kind of a paper tiger way, but like National Nurses United has put 
real, you know, boots on the ground and, and money behind it. And, you know, helped write, you know, some of Sanders's bills and uh, Pramila Jaipal's bills, like they, they, they really did help um, contribute to the formulation of what single payer could look like in the United States uh, in a real meaningful way. And so I think we, we should, we as physicians should uh, take a page or take, take some lessons or, you know, uh, study under um, our nursing colleagues and our other more organized colleagues who have been pushing for this for some time. Um, and really make sure that our organizations are no longer forces against the good, uh, are no longer uh, obstacles to progress. Um, and there, there have been good efforts by, you know, younger members of those organizations to try to organize against them or to build new organizations, you know, afresh that that don't have that baggage, that don't have that history. Uh, but we're still we're still laggards, you know. And I think part of it has to do with this idea that I touched on before as physicians as independent professionals that is a product of that history of the 19th century and a long history of, of ideological training that we go through as physicians to say that we are, uh, we, you know, we, we, we determine who enters our ranks. We determine the standards by which uh, we ourselves are judged and we should, uh, you know, therefore continue this, this tradition of the independent professional and not, you know, uh, subordinate ourselves, I guess, is sometimes the word that is used to, to, uh, to an organization or a union that, that won't follow those same, those same logics. But more and more, I think most of us realize that we are at the mercy of these large corporate institutions. You know, people have been summarily fired for speaking out against unsafe working conditions, especially during COVID. And so I think for a lot of us, the scales fell from our eyes and we were willing to, to look at this with fresh eyes and see that, see the, the wisdom uh, of some of our other colleagues in, in organizing and take up that mantle. Yeah. I wanted to invite you to read a piece from page 118, where you also sort of undermine the the myth of the physician as a totally independent actor. Yeah, absolutely. I'll start here. We are no longer the masters of our own destiny. Particularly early in our careers, we are dependent on our employers if we want to pay back six-figure medical school loans. In exchange for freedom from this debt and the promise of later comforts, we become part of the machinery of the credit industry. In place of healing and liberation, we become unwitting agents of social control. If we are willing to stomach working for a private equity-owned or for-profit facility, our pay is likely to be higher. In exchange, we agree, at least tacitly, to keep complaints out of the public square. Doctors, too, are increasingly controlled by debt. And I think, you know, in that sense, have a direct stake in a, a movement that aims at debt abolition and a transformation of our political and economic order. And I just want to thank you for helping to make that case, making it with such compassion, such clarity. It's so impressive that you're in the ER and also in the archives, digging through this stuff. I really um, enjoyed reading this book and talking to you. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. And I just want to say thank you for your example. I learned so much. I remember I was reading Remake the World uh, in, uh, in Malawi, three years ago when I was thinking about this book and it was really a, a motivation and an inspiration uh, as your work in organizing have been, has been. So thanks for your example too. Luke Messick is a historian and physician whose research focuses on the political economy of healthcare. 
His first book, No More to Spend, is a history of medical neglect and exploitation in colonial and post-colonial Malawi. His second book, discussed on today's dig, is Your Money or Your Life, a history of medical debt collection in the United States. He's an attending physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and an instructor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School. Luke was interviewed by Astra Taylor, a writer, filmmaker, organizer, and guest host here on The Dig. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the life of the poor man and his talents and activity serve the rich man as a guarantee of the repayment of the money lent. While other podcasts similarly interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives and newsletters at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter and also now Instagram at thedigradio. And find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What really and truly does that, though, is you telling your friends to check out the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly or annual contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.